1: Hey, this is Tony Watley from the 365 Driven Podcast. And if you want to level up your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network Podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel.
2: If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell.
0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I am talking with my buddy, Tony Watley. Tony became known as the side hustle millionaire after his book with the same title became a number one bestseller on Amazon. But the book title is not fiction. It's based on his actual story. Once, Tony led a successful corporate career for over 25 years. But that's less interesting than the side businesses that he created, which generated millions in profit. As an active entrepreneur himself he still owns a few businesses but his real passion is teaching entrepreneurs how to start scale and sell their business within his podcast and consulting brand 365 driven guys gonna be such a fun conversation uh tony and i were able to hang out a little bit last summer out here in vegas get to know each other um, really great guy really great story and i'm excited to get into that with him but first really quickly if you are a podcaster or you like to be a guest on podcasts then you should head over to guestio.com. It's the new software that my team and I built, put together to uh, basically connect good podcast hosts with good podcast guests. So if you haven't checked it out yet, if you haven't created your free profile, then head over to guestio.com and create that today. Tony, what is up, my man? Appreciate you for coming on the show.
1: Hey, Travis, good to connect as usual and good to see your smiling face there, man, on this camera. I know the listeners can't see it, but we're gonna have a good conversation today.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So let's take it back, man. Talk to me about how all this stuff started for you. I know that you got a lot of stuff going on. You got multiple irons in the fire. You're always working on something new. And uh, I respect that a lot about you. So let's take it back, like all the way back. Okay, 13, 14-year-old Tony Watley talked to me about, you know, what did your parents do? Did you like school? You know, what was what did life look like for for 13, 14-year-old Tony Watley?
1: Man, that's a good one. My parents were both really hard workers. They're blue collar parents. Uh, I was actually the first one in my family on both sides to go to university. And that's even including extended family. Wow. And I got a mechanical engineering degree, but I think really I learned the value of hard work back then. My mom was a cafeteria worker in the public school systems her entire career for over 30 years. And my dad was a US Marine. And after the military, he, he worked construction and the pipelines and the, the chemical plants here in Houston. So I had really two high disciplinary parents. My dad was was the, you know, the Marine Sergeant, you know, kind of discipline. And then my mom being a Japanese, we hear like the Asian dragon moms. That's my mom. I mean, (laughs) she she really valued education and I did not miss a single day of school from kindergarten through graduation. So 13 years of perfect attendance, straight A's and top 10% in my class. And if I got an A minus, it was kind of not doing good. So that's just who I was. I was really disappointed on school, but I actually liked school and I thought public school was pretty easy to me and university engineering school, different story. That was kind of kicking my ass because when you go to that school, it's a, you're now longer, you're, you're, you're an average because when all the top students go into that curriculum your average and, and that was actually the first time i got a b or a c and i was like what the hell is this i remember getting a c thinking my life was over <laughs> yeah no kidding i mean after
0: that kind of a record growing up i mean you're def- definitely destined for college what do you feel i'm curious on your side of the College, no college uh, argument that people are having nowadays. What what side of the of the token do you land on?
1: You know, when I was going to school, it was in the you know nineteen ninety one to ninety seven. is when I was in the university, and back then education was more important to me because we didn't have the resources for the information available. Nowadays, we have YouTube and we have books and we have people like you and I sharing our expertise and. It's a lot easier to find information nowadays, where when I was young, you had to go to the library or you had to pull out what we used to call encyclopedias for anybody that remembers what those were. But that's really all we had for information. And it was a lot more important to get an education from the university back then because it was just where you had to go. And nowadays, dude, you can learn whatever you want. And I don't think it's really as important. My son is 21. I don't pressure him to go to school. He, he's taking courses by his own choice, but I always tell him, Hey, you can start a business. You can do this. You can do that. I give him all kinds of options. And really I quit telling him what to do when he's probably about 14, 15 years old.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So stop telling him what to do and start teaching him how to think about it. Maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just giving them the options because I always felt that when I was in school that I would never be a business owner because to me being a business owner, I mean, you had to build a, a brick and mortar on main street in a small town and it would have to say Watley on the front and do something like whatever your skill is. So Watley's plumbing, Watley's automotive repair, whatever it is. So I always thought that you know only rich people could be business owners and that it would take a lot of money to own a building and put a sign up and do all this kind of stuff. And you know, that was, was pre-internet. So my mindset around business was all stemmed around the middle class. What we talk about is, you know, time is money and it takes money to make money and all these limiting factors that people put on us. And we just perpetuate that by asking it and saying it to our friends and our kids and it doesn't really serve us nowadays because nowadays the entire world can be our customer base from a device that we carry every day, our cell phone. And it's just an unlimited world for business right now. And I actually had to grow into that. I was never like, I I didn't think I was an entrepreneur. I did things to make money, you know, to make extra money.
0: Yeah, sure. So talk to me then about the decision you know, post college, what 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 was the, you know, were there offers on the table? Did you have to work, you know, side jobs or what what happened after that?
1: So yeah, I actually was working full-time construction just like my dad in the refineries while I was going to school and I was attending school at night and I was waiting tables on the weekends and also wrenching on cars on Saturdays and Sunday mornings at a local mechanic shop. And the thing that I started to understand was that I was trading hours for for dollars. You know, we were falling mm-hmm. into that trap. If you wanted more dollars, you had to go create more hours and get, get over time and pick up extra shifts and do all this thing. And and that's that just weirded me out. I was that 24-7 hustle and grind type mindset during those years. And it was about three hours of sleep on average. And I was stressed out and I felt broke and had a lot of anxiety and I just didn't like it. But the thing is when I graduated and I got a big boy job with a salary finally, you know, not an hourly rate, I felt like I was super like smarter and, important at that point. was really weird. And, and what you realize is that you get home at five o'clock in the evening and you have all this extra time on your hands and you're like, what do I do? Like do most people, what do they do at five o'clock? I mean, I'm not married. I don't have any kids yet. So, you know, you try out going into the bar scene and do that a little bit and you're like, okay, this is kind of fun, but still like, what do I do? Like I could be making more money. And Actually, I started going back to the restaurant that I previously worked at and picked up extra ships as a waiter, even with an engineering degree. So I was going to go back and make 100, 150 bucks extra a night. And that's originally what I did, Fred. Probably did that for about a year and a half. And I started getting into the automotive scene. I was like, you know, what? I can make some little product or a hand built device and I can make some money sitting at my kitchen table every night instead of doing the restaurant. And that's what I did I made these little electronic circuits that I would go to Radio Shack and buy all these little resistors and weld them, you know, solder them together and wire things up. And it would fool the sensor on an engine and give it 10 horsepower. So basically it was just the IAT sensor fooling. And the thing is, is, that that didn't scale very well because it took me an hour to build one of those. And I could profit about $40 per unit, but there wasn't a whole lot of people buying those. I would probably sell about 10 a week. And the money was better than waiting tables because I could do it at home, but it just didn't scale. and And if I wanted to make 40 bucks, I had to sit at the table for another hour. So that was kind of my first online business. I made a little landing page with one little page, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, when was this, what year was this? This was 1998. Okay, so like back with like early, early days of anything online.
1: Yep, I taught myself how to code HTML and Photoshop because I'm kind of a creative person. And I figured that learning how to do it on a digital medium was just another canvas that I can create a, have a creative outlet. And mm. so I was actually practicing and I started building web pages for local companies that were just trying to get their space on there. And I kind of got pretty fun at doing that. And that became my next side hustle is just building little one to three page websites, just actually hard coding at HTML with Notepad and Writing out the the photographs and writing the copy, and so I studied books on copy and all kinds of stuff to try to make websites better. And they were paying me like 150 to 200 dollars for a web page, and I can knock those out pretty quick, actually.
0: Yeah. So basically, the side hustle just kept getting more and more and more. Like you are always looking, you know, instead of using my free time to do something that doesn't make me money, I may as well use my free time to do something that does make me money. And uh, and then it just started making you more and and more and more money right? Yes. So, and and this is you in your mid to late 20s?
1: Yeah, I was around 26, 27 at that time frame.
0: Okay. But but your full-time job is working as a mechanical engineer.
1: Correct. And, and the thing is, it was a little frustrating in that regard because I'd always been somewhat of an overachiever and trying to push myself to do more. And, you know, within two years of a corporate job, I knew that I could do a lot more and I had a lot more. I wanted more authority. I wanted more responsibilities. I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to you know, just, just do more and get paid more for my, my skills and my knowledge. And I got tired of people telling me to wait my turn and you're, you're new here and you got to like so-and-so is the boss right now. And you'll get that office when they get moved up. And it was always like this, this artificial ceiling again, that you see that happens in our lives, just holding us in place. Like, Oh, you got to wait your turn. And, you know, someday you'll get that bigger cubicle, you know? And yeah. so actually when I started the, the bigger website that grew to the millions, it was that I just wanted a creative outlet, man. I just wanted to do something and be an yeah. authority and, and make decisions and have a creative. I just wanted to do something outside of work.
0: So how long until you were making what, what you view as like, serious, quote unquote, serious money and on the side
1: hustle stuff. So we launched the website ls1tech.com in November of 2001. And I didn't even know what an LLC or anything that was. I just wanted to build a cool website for my car friends to hang out and talk about cars. So LS1 was a General Motors performance website community. We focused on the Corvettes, the Camaros, the Firebirds and Cadillac cars like that and anything with a V8 LS1 engine in it. And it grew, and, and honestly, we had a few sponsors early on. Had five five sponsors paying like 150 a month, like really low dollar at that point. But and, and this, it, is, this is this like a, a forum, like a yes, a, yes. We okay. used a V bulletin and created like a, a front end page that led the forum. Okay, got it, got it. And then this is the one that just started really seeing some success. It started taking off, and about about ten months in, we're making about ten thousand dollars profit per month.
0: So it, this is in addition to your full time thing still.
1: Correct was
0: there a point along the way where you're like why am i even why am i still doing this job thing or was that just like something that was just a part of your dna that you really enjoyed doing that gave you kind of the you know the permission or the security to be able to kind of chase these these other rabbits uh, across yeah you know
1: across the yard and, and try to catch one of them I think that for me, that question came up a lot. Like, why, why? Because people would hear about the money I was making, and they would see the lifestyle was starting to have, and they're like, "Man, we we're paying you too much at this job." Like, no, actually, this job is my part-time income. You know, to think about it <laughs> that way. Because my, I think my salary back then was around sixty-five thousand. So literally, I was making double that on my my side hustle and. The thing is, is that me going full-time on that side hustle would not have increased the revenue. So I was really aware of that because we started to become the top of the market share. So when you get into the number one position of any category or niche, you're not gonna go get more market share by jumping and going full-time. So and me being an engineer and working in project management, I got really good at creating processes and systems in the corporate level. And I just started to figure out how to fire myself because I worked offshore and also international. So sometimes I'd be gone for 30 days at a time floating on a boat in the middle of the gulf of mexico or in and in, in africa or something and i don't have internet access so i had to still be able to run my businesses without being there so i got really resourceful at firing myself and hiring some people as just just contractors people i could part you know part time to do things manage the server update the software check the securities make sure of the things my wife was at home so she could she could handle the invoicing and things like that financially and so I got really good at just firing myself really early on and understanding that I didn't have to be a part of this. And I got it down to where I was only spending about 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day, really as a consumer, which gave me a really good perspective because now I got to use my business as a, like a consumer would and see it through their eyes and what was annoying and what can improve and do all these kind of things. And, you know, the, the company just grew and grew and grew. And you know within two years, we're profiting about $400,000 a year.
0: And this is the same the same forum just just a website a web page that you had online it's largely mostly running by itself yes. yeah, i mean here's the thing man i i have to applaud you at this point in the story because there's so many other people that would have just ditched the full-time thing and i uh i have to applaud you for that because you understood one really valuable thing one really valuable lesson and that is how much money it actually takes to be able to live the lifestyle that you want to live and stop working when you want to stop working. And I think that the majority of the population is totally underestimating the amount of money that they need to be able to live the rest of their lives on, or have never even thought about it. You know what I mean? Like they just go to work. It blows my mind, man. Like it blows my mind when people just like, they just go to work and it's like, well, why, why are you working? Oh, this is what you do. It's like, no, no, no. Like that's not true. You don't, Like, that's not not just what you do. You like the reason that we work is so that we can make enough money so we can support a family or provide for people that we care about to do the things that we love, to have freedom to travel, to go places. The problem is that most people can't do any of those things until they're 70 years old because they worked their whole youth away, you know, slaving away for somebody else uh, because they never did the math at the beginning of their career to figure out okay, but. How much money do I actually need to stop working? And how can I get to that dollar amount faster? (laughs) You know what I mean? So uh, for someone like you to be making, I mean, $400,000 a year on a side project in addition to your full-time income that was, you know, at that point, you know, what, one-eighth or whatever that is of that? I mean, like
1: around, around that time we were making that, I was probably making 150,000 a year salary. Oh, okay.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, but still a fraction of, of what you were making in the business. So I, I gotta, I gotta applaud you for that, man. So uh, talk to me then next steps. What what happens after that?
1: I mean, the things started to grow and we did everything right. So people are wondering how you can make that kind of money was advertising. I mean, my, my, my ad accounts, we had 100, 150 ad accounts when I sold that company in 2007. And some of the names are pretty recognizable, like Chevrolet and Cadillac and Michelin and all these big names we're advertising because we're directly competing against print media. And we had a lot higher volume per day than they had in circulation per month on their magazines. So to give you an example, we have over 100,000 unique visitors to my website per day. So think about like if we're going to go back to the talking about the, the main street, small town type business. Can you imagine 100,000 people walking through your front door every single day to come in your store? That's what I had as a website. And you got to understand when we build a community that's got over 300,000 registered members, I have a lot of contact information, a lot of internet. I can see the intel. I can see the server logs. I can see when they're logged in and how long they're spending on time and what their contact... How do I have all this information just like Google has now on the dashboard. And so... I didn't really think about valuation. I just knew that this was a pretty good business. You know, we ran it like a business. We made sure we gave a safe place for the people to communicate and hang out. We got rid of cancerous individuals that disrupted the scene. And we just really created a lot of value and there's a lot of user-generated content. And now the media and all the people that wanted to advertise with us, they could have real-time access. If they wanted some feedback on a new product that they were going to develop, they could just give it to us and we'd roll it out for them and they would get the response from the actual thing in real time. They would have their engineers hanging out on their website to answer questions. They'd go back and refine stuff, and then they would do the launch. And I got to do this with cars and engines. And General Motors invited me to write their articles in the magazines for the the release of the new engines and stuff like that. So it no longer became just about me. It was always about me and my 300,000 people that I represented. And that's what gave me leverage and VIP access to media and doing all this kind of stuff. So as a car guy, dude, I was like in hog heaven just for being in, in that scene, you know? created my own seat at that table.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And and that's the cool thing about online businesses, man, that uh, that a lot of people don't think understand fully is that you don't you don't got to be the expert. You don't have to start with the the giant audience. You don't have to start with even the product in mind. You you don't have to start with the monetization method in mind. Just find something. like, And I'm speaking specifically to people who are like you, right? People who have a full-time job that don't really have any intention of leaving that job because it, it's something that they enjoy. It fuels them. It's something that they're passionate about, whatever. you know, Fill in the blank. They don't have to leave and they, they're not planning on leaving. Just do something on the side online that gets you doing more of the things that you like to do. And you don't know you just don't know. If you put in consistent amount of effort over a period of time, you don't know where that can end up, and it's only going to continue to bring more opportunity to you rather than less opportunity to you. Um, even if that's a promotion at work because of the other stuff that you're doing online and the the the, the brand that you're building in in yourself, maybe that makes you a more valuable employee. Like I, I don't know, but. You know, the just just it's, it's the action that is headed toward the dream that you had that allowed you to be able to do something that filled you up and filled your bank account up, which is mutually advantageous and definitely makes it easier to fill you up when you're filling your bank account and doing something that you enjoy. So this episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So then you, you sell that business, exit, get rid of it. And then it, it, did you start another business during that time or did you wait till you sold that
1: one to start the, the, the business that you have now? And I, I became like the king of verticals while we were running that business because I started seeing gaps in the industry for the things that I was creating or being able to offer so for example let's say that you owned Travis's speed shop and you were in Las Vegas but you didn't have a website so you would come to me and go hey Tony I would love to advertise on your community but I don't have a website. I kept hearing this kind of thing over and over. I was like, well, shit, I can build websites. And so I started farming out website building, getting in the vertical again of designing and building websites so they could pay me to build their website so they could pay me to advertise on my website. Yeah, And right. then that became ad buying and it became graphic design for their banner ads and their magazine placements. And so I built a little marketing agency and things like this off the side and So at the peak of that, I had about 75 freelancers and I didn't have to do anything but take home checks. I just got to hang out and be Tony and be one of the guys on the website that everybody knew who the owner was. And I didn't have to have the ego and go, I'm super awesome. And look how awesome I am. And you guys are all here because of me. And you know that's what that's what we see nowadays with the follower type basis. You know, like I'm the follow. You guys are my followers. I'm super awesome. It was my goal. Like people always ask me, how do you build massive communities? I was able to duplicate that business model and take it to PerformanceTrucks.net. And both these sites are still existing. I mean, they were both bought in 2007 by a large company. And I took the same business model, the same core values, the same leadership style, the same context in the industry. And I said, hey, I'm going to go build a truck website now, and that one grew at over 200,000 members. So, it can be done, it can be replicated. But how do you do that? You have to be a humble leader. You have to be embedded within your community. You have to be accessible. You have to be not something that's on a pedestal. And my job is to create and facilitate to create really strong bonds and communication links between each and every member because it's my duty to make them become best friends so that they knew where they all met and they kept coming, hanging back out. So, if you think about this from a localized perspective, maybe your local bar, like, you know, we see Cheers, like that old show and everybody goes there and they all have friends there and they can't wait to hang out with their friends. Well, I was pretty smart about that. I was like, you know, I need to make these people friends. I need to get them off of the keyboard and off of the screen names and actually meet. So what we did is we started having racing and car show events around the country and all the hot spots where we knew that the enthusiasts kind of gathered and we would just go spend $50,000 on an event to get people to drive for five to six hours from that per, you know, perimeter. They would get off their keyboards, they would come race each other, they'd hang out for the weekend, they get to know each other. Then when they get back, they have all these stories and they're like, man, you guys are so awesome. And like we'd have state versus state rivalries and we would find people that would shit talk on the different racetracks and like pair them up and have like these title matches. And you can imagine like people drove from all over the country to come to these events and we did them in L.A. and Texas and Florida and New Jersey and Detroit and you know, I was I was thinking, hey, in no other websites were doing that. They're like, oh, we're making all this money. Why would we waste money on racing events? I was like, Wasting dude, that's a, money, yeah. that's a marketing, that's a marketing thing, and that's why yeah. we became number one. That's why nobody could touch us. We were so far ahead of everybody else. We actually set the benchmark on paid forums, but nobody even knew how to monetize them at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
0: business that you did after. So you you sold sold both of these these companies back in in two thousand and seven. At what point did you stop working and what was the next business idea after that?
1: Well, actually, I started an online retail company while I owned that business because we had a missing market there. People were wanting to buy wheels, obviously, or car guys, and we didn't have any advertisers selling wheels. So I created that company. So again, I got into that vertical where I became this wheel retailer. And when I sold the company, they didn't want anything to do with retail. They just wanted the data of the people and they wanted the marketing. They so attention. I carved that out. Yeah, I carved that out. I started that in 2003 and I, I still own it. It's called deviatemotoring.com. And you know that's one of the wheel businesses I've had. And it's a seven-figure business. And that's another side hustle that I spend literally 15 minutes a day on even today because i built things that I don't have to mess with. And people really come back to me because it's just a recurring customer base. It's referrals and repeat customers 80% of my business because I only sell high-end wheels, like expensive stuff. So they have to trust somebody that knows how it fits their car and that's not going to run off with their money. And they don't just trust an online person to buy a $6,000 set of wheels on average. So they know who I am. They refer to their other high net worth individuals like, hey, this guy sells wheels. He's hooked me up for 10 years. Like, you know, come on, like buy... I don't even have to like pitch them. You know, It's like, here's the price. Boom, they buy them. So I realized it takes a lot of time to do that. And I built a lot of SEO, so I don't have to run any ads anymore. You know, 15 years on the internet of putting your watermarked photos out there. Anybody finds them anytime they search for these wheels. And, you know, so I did that. And in 2015, I left corporate to answer your question. You know, I was oil and gas at that point. I was probably making right under 250,000 a year in my salary. And I was in a car accident. I raced cars. And I was in a near-death experience. I was trying to set a new national record in a Dodge Viper with twin turbos, 1,000 horsepower, trying to be the first one of the nines for the fifth generation Viper. And it was a shop car, a local shop that knows I have a lot of seat time because I've got a, a car of my own with you know, 1,300 horsepower, and it's another Viper. So they knew that I have a lot of experience, thousands of passes. And you know, on that particular pass at the top of third gear, something in the rear suspension broke, and it made the rear wheels do the steering instead of the front. And so I took a hard lift and I hit a concrete wall at 130 miles per hour. And as I was approaching that wall, I remember muttering to myself, well, here I go. Because I really thought I was going to die. I was going to hit my side of the car, two-door sports car, concrete jersey barriers. Like this is not good odds. And impact happened and it was nighttime and the lights flickering off, the airbags deployed, the cabin was filled with that white powdery smoke. And you could hear the entire car just kind of coming apart and making these screeching noise and the car was sliding. And I didn't know if I was injured or not at that after the impact, but I just remember being conscious and I just focused on stay awake, stay awake, yeah. stay awake. Because I know that from racing, we rarely die in the impact because we we rarely, we get killed in the fire because all the fluids come out of the engine, the transmission, the differential fuel, and there's a big old flame, and then you you're you're, you're cocked out and you basically just fry to death. And I just knew I had to stay awake and get out of that car. And man, it felt like an eternity as that car was sliding and it finally came to rest. And I had to pry the door open because it had been caved in on that side and and I got out and I I was really calm. The weirdest thing about that was when I was approaching the wall, I I felt an overwhelming sense of peacefulness. I just felt peaceful. I like It was like typically like this Jesus take the wheel moment. And it's really profound. And I was really calm even after getting out in the ambulance from the track. Paramedic did an inspection on me and she's looking over my vitals and she's looking over my heart rate, asking me questions if I have a concussion. And I'm very clear and I'm just as, as lucid as I am right now speaking to you. And When she was done looking at me, and and she's like, "You know, can I tell you something that's really unusual?" And I'm like, "Oh crap! What's she going to tell me?" I'm like, "My ribs are sticking out my back, or my legs backwards, or you know." And I was like, it kind of gave me a little bit of a fright. And she's like, "You're remarkably calm for someone who's been in such a major accident. Usually, people have the adrenaline shakes, they're cold sweating, they're they're kind of just physiological signs of a like a like a like a you know, just just something happened, you know." And I didn't have any of that. I was just really calm in that moment. And what was going through my mind was, why am I still here? I'm looking at the car out the back of the ambulance. I was like, why am I still here? The car was literally wheels off the car, every damage, every panel of this car was crushed in. And the next question in that sequence is, what if I would have died? And then the next sequence in that question is, how would I have been remembered? And then I started to really think about that question. It's like, how would I have been remembered if I would have died? And I started thinking about my friends who had passed away. And it was always so and so was a nice guy. So and so had cool cars. So and so, you know, gone too soon. Hope they're racing upstairs with the big man, you know, these kind of cliche things. And, you know, those are good things to aspire to if you're a dirtbag and you want to be remembered as a nice guy. But for what it told me, it was that it was superficial and I wasn't doing enough because I didn't have the impact statement in there. I'd only impacted my family and my close proximity of friends and the people that I employed, but I, I knew that I could do more. And the reason I wasn't doing more is because I was hiding. And I was afraid to put my voice out there. I didn't like being on stage. I didn't like being on camera. And I just felt really uncomfortable because of childhood bullying and just learning to fit in and not stand out. And just, I just realized at that moment that I should be doing a lot more with my life. And I decided I'm not going to go back to my corporate job. And I took the next two years off trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was always in front of me. It was always the Two things I love are cars and entrepreneurship, and I've been really successful in business. And I'd helped several of my former staff and friends build seven and nine figure businesses. I, like I was repeating this over and over and over, and they were always telling me like you should be doing this full time. But but Traps, I was I was always full of excuses because I didn't want to put myself out there. I had a very comfortable life, and I just I just so I got a kid, I got a career, I got businesses to run. I don't have time for that. But I knew that I should be doing that the whole time. And so after that two-year journey, it's like, you know, that's what I should be doing. I need to write this book. You know, the Side Hustle Millionaire came out in 2018. And and honestly, when I wrote that book, it was really a cowardly play to get what was in my mind out to the masses because I realized that you can write a pretty successful book without being known, right? You could walk by a New York Times bestseller and you wouldn't recognize them. Yeah. Right, so, right. so it was kind of a cowardly thing to do. And I only started admitting that in recent months and in recent interviews, but I knew that when I was writing it, right? So I was like, oh, I can just write this book and get it out of my head and then it'll satisfy my need to create some impact. Yeah. And if it doesn't do good, then, oh, well, I get, you know, that's the way I was thinking, man. What changed? Oh, man, that was a shift there. First, the, the title of the book. I actually wrote the manuscript as the hustle, you know, as, as kind of a cliche. And it, I used to be a collegiate nine ball billiards champion and, and play a high level at pool so to me, it was like, oh, the hustle and like the hustle of hustle and grind, like, oh, it's kind of a dual meaning. It's super cool. And I wrote this manuscript out and I, and I was giving a chapter at a time to my my editor and he's reading it and he's like, oh man, this book's going to do really well, but we got to do something about this title. This title sucks. The Hustle, like, what is that? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's The Hustle, man. I used to play pool. And he's like, get it, um, get and this, it? <laughs> he's like, this, this title sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Get it. Do you get it? And it's like, no, he goes, he goes, man, you're the side hustle millionaire. And I was like, dude, that sounds really arrogant and kind of dumb. And I was like, I don't know. I just had this negative feeling re- reaction to it. And he was like, well, let's break it down. Did you or did you not build successful side hustles? I was like, yes, I did. Did you or did you not sell that thing for millions of dollars? Well, yes, I did. Well, so which which of those two words are you, are you going to get some flack for? I have to like argue about. And I'm like, well, shit, he's right. And so I said, let me sleep on it. And then I woke up the next morning and... said side hustle millionaire is this the sound right to me and and what i realized is that i had not become the right person to step into that role in that title Mm, yeah right i said damn i'm like scared of putting that out there and it's fact like i'm worried about critics and i'm actually putting a title on her as fact and so i said i need to step up and become the right person to be able to carry this message and relay this story to the masses and now it gets worse, dude, because now he's like, he's reading the chapters. We're probably five to six chapters in. And he's like, dude, this is going to sell really well. You might get interviewed. You might be on TV. You might be on podcasts. You might be asked to speak in an event. And here's that stage fright thing I had. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I, I was just trying to write this book to get it out there without saying anything. And and I said, like, I'm not going to be a bitch. I'm going to go invest in myself and, and overcome this fear. And I joined a Toastmasters and I went every week and I felt really awkward and I raised my hand to volunteer every time because I knew I had to expedite the results and then I would do social media videos every single night on Facebook and Instagram just to get reps. I was just learning something a tactical and public speaking and I would go do a video and another video and I would take 10 takes initially. And I was so embarrassed, dude. I used to do these in my truck after work. Like I was consulting gigs at this point and I had a tie on and I'd sit there in my my Jeep Grand Cherokee and I put the phone on the dash and I start doing a video. But if somebody fucking walked by, I would like take the phone down. Like I'm inside the truck. They don't even know I'm in there, but I would, I was so worried about what other people thought and didn't like being on camera. I didn't want to be looked at like, Oh, look at that stupid dude doing selfie videos because that's what dudes yeah. say. You know, it's, it's hard for men to understand. Like, you know, when you come from the car scene, like, like dudes doing selfies at a car scene, you'd be, you'd be like, oh, are we need a teenage girl? You know, and, and that's, and you're like, yeah, that guy's a teenage girl. But then you start to realize the people that are actually doing the things that you want to achieve are doing that. And you're like, well, why am I exactly. taking advice from these assholes? Right? <laughs> you know, when the guys like Travis and the people I admire and all these different people are doing exactly what they're making fun of. So, that's I something. had to shift. And you know what, dude, I lost a lot of those friends as as a result of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the name of the game, unfortunately, man, is, you know, and I was having this conversation with somebody recently and they're like, yeah, the, the people who, a lot of times the people who claim that they don't care what people think are usually the people who care the most about what people think. It's just usually a different group of people that they're concerned about. Uh, you know what I mean? And so in in those types of of scenarios where you're concerned about, you know, will people think that I am somebody that's trying to impress people, right? Like, like you're worried about people thinking that you're somebody that worries about what people think. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like Man, this totally right thing. There. Yeah, right. But you, you, you get what I'm saying, though, right? Like you're, because I've been there, and that's why I can articulate it the way that I just did because I've, I've been there where you're, you're worried that people are going to think that you're that you're somebody that worries about what people think and uh and i've definitely been in that in that situation you and i have kind of had uh just kind of comical conversations about you know the the douchebag with the with the ferrari the doors are open and they're posing out in the front yeah it's like peace signs and uh you know hugging the world and stuff like that but at the end of the day you know what i mean like more power to you bro like good for you for just jumping out there and putting it out and just saying like, Hey, you know what? This works, you know? And, and I talked to somebody recently about this too, because, uh, they, they, uh, they run ads to this, um, you know, ad of them in their Lamborghini or whatever. And, uh, which is the stereotypical ad that everybody makes fun of. And it totally moves you into like the internet douchebag world. You know, if you, if you put out, if you put out, it's the second you put an ad of you in front of one of your nice cars you're immediately labeled as like douchebag, you know. That's right. But this whether, guy was like, "No, you are not." That's
1: that's the immediate reaction.
0: Yeah, but but this guy was like, "I wouldn't do it if it didn't work so well. It just works, <laughs> you know." Like, so am I really gonna stop, like? making profit in my business because some people might think I'm a douchebag because I have a nice car like that doesn't make it like I I live in abundance I I get to drive the, my dream car why would I not be proud of that like that's that's a good thing why is everybody demonizing this person for driving a nice car and look I understand the the reasoning behind it because some people uh, shouldn't have bought that car, and they might be just renting it for the day and trying to make it seem like they're like the fake it till you make it people. This is a different conversation because we're not talking about the fake it till you make it people. That's obviously totally, I think, morally incorrect and uh, and deceitful and uh, scammy. But uh, you know, if you if you're somebody like you who not only do you not only can you afford to drive a nice car, but you actually know how to drive a nice car, then that's a completely separate conversation. But it is funny how. I say all that to say that it's funny how even though even those of us who kind of pride ourselves on, well, I don't care what people think about us. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> you know, is, we do.
1: Just well, might be a little on that bit same story, around. did you see our our, our mutual friend, Daniel, believe what he did with that photo? I did. Yeah, we talked about it. <laughs> uh, like Actually, I,
0: th- I think that's who brought up the conversation because because uh, we were talking about it the other day um, at the gym and then he, he went home and Posed with a picture of his uh, his Honda Accord, you know, but
1: but he, yeah, but he had the doors open. So just just to clarify to listeners, we're not making fun of like you standing near a cool car. That's cool, but my thing was like, why are two doors open when they're alone in the photo? Like, why are, Why do they got both doors open? So, you know, for what I trolled them, I actually went and I uh, pulled my Jeep out on the driveway and I lowered the tailgate and I opened all four doors of the Jeep. And I sat on the, the tailgate and I gazed west because I was closing deals before the sunset, you know, closing billions. <laughs> on my phone, like posing with that serious mean, mean mug look. And I said, this is for all the the coaches that you know, pose with their in front of their car with all the doors open, even though they're alone in the foot. I was like, why do they have all these doors open? Are they waiting for their dog to jump in? Or did yeah. somebody run away from them? Or he, what is this stuff? And you know, so Dana went home and he's a friend of ours and he stood in, he put it in his look like he was parked in his front yard, which was even more funny. Yeah. And he opened the, the doors of his Honda Accord and he goes and he had the caption like posing hard in front of my Honda Rati or something Yeah, the Honda
0: and the Mazda Yeah he's got that Mazda three and the Honda Honda Accord. But this here's a dude that's you never know, Running a seven-figure business that uh, that drives a Honda because he understands how to manage his money. That's a different conversation. But anyway, um, uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's exactly. I I think I, I think by the way to to throw a defense out to anybody taking pictures with your car doors open. I feel that the only way you can justify it is if your car is open in a different way than the majority of other cars. I feel like that's the only way that you could potentially justify it. If, if you're driving like a, a Tesla Model X or you're driving a a Lambo with scissor doors or something like that, and you want to make sure people know that your doors are cool, like that would be the only way that I would be able to see that there's some sort of an exception to that
1: rule. But... Uh but but yeah. even then I would only take a picture of the car. I wouldn't be in that photo.
0: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But but anyway, man, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I, I do want to ask you a couple quick questions about, about networking and, and, and relationships and stuff. It's clear to me that one of your superpowers in business has been systems procedures. Would you say would you agree with that?
1: I would agree with that.
0: So talk to me about your experience when it comes to relationships and how that has been a huge part of your success as well. Obviously, you build you know, the, your first couple of businesses were all about building community and building better relationships with people. So I know that it's something that you hold near and dear to your heart. Um, and then that's how you and I connected is through mutual friendships and connections. And uh, so I know it's a big part of, of, of your journey. Would you uh, care to share just, uh, you know, the, the role that relationships have played in your success? And then I got to ask you one more question before we move on to the final round
1: yeah i think that the relationships are the most valuable thing that you'll ever have because you got to realize that their lifetime if you build the right relationships they're going to last either their life or your life one of the two and i think a lot of people just kind of live in a transactional type relationship setting where they just want to get the maximum on one exchange you know i think about i'm not trying to make a, a maximum transaction when i meet somebody I'm trying to think about, I just want these cool people that actually follow up and do what they say around me. I want those kind of people surrounding me and I don't know how it's going to play out. Maybe we become business owners in 10 years or maybe they refer somebody that changes my life or, you know, so there's always things and I'm always trying to figure out how do I can communicate people and show them I actually care. And I actually do follow up and I have integrity and I do exactly what I say. And those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with. And when you start to push away the people that show you the negative sides of themselves, don't ever feel bad about that. Just understand that when people show you who they truly are, be grateful for that because if it's not what lines with your core values, you should be thankful that they cut your time short and you can move on and start being more focused on the people actually who do matter in your life. And yeah. I think that is very important. I think a lot of people hate to hear that. They hate to, they hate to hear that phrase of, you know, it's all who you know, but I, you know, we always think it's not all who you know, it's who knows you. Because when you build things that are on top of mind, content like the podcast or our social media content, or we're hanging out on Clubhouse now, when somebody gets a referral or a, a needs some advice, you want to be the top of their mind. So it's it's who knows you, not about who you know, because you could say you and I know a lot of famous people, but if they don't know us when it comes to the solution that you can solve, then does it really matter? Right? Yeah. And, and that, I mean, kind of answers my next question, which was who you know or what you know, which one's
0: more important and why. But you kind of answered that and, and it seems like the answer would be who knows you is what you value the most there. So uh, man, so so much good stuff here today, Tony. I appreciate you for coming on. Let's go ahead and move into the last segment. So let's call the random round. Just quick, random questions, quick, random answers. Ready? Ready. What profession other than your own
1: do you think that it would be fun to attempt? Attorney.
0: If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present in
1: chat for an hour, who would it be? My Japanese grandfather that I'd never met because he passed away from alcoholism while I was a baby
0: how do you like to consume content?
1: Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? I would say audiobooks.
0: Give us a glimpse of your morning routine.
1: I get up and I take a really long commute to my coffee machine. And then I take a a really long commute to my office and I get to work. I'm a morning person, so I'm very productive. And I I don't think that I should be doing meditation and working out when my mind is on fire with creativity and energy. So I actually guard that time between 6 a.m. to noon to do creative work. And I go work out in the evenings. Actually, when we get off this call, it's 6.15 right now. I'm going to go to the gym after this because when I'm physically spent or when I'm mentally spent for the day, I'm ready to go be physical. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, my gosh. I would say that the song that goes back the furthest would be Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses.
0: What is something that you are just not very good at? Hmm. Not very good at. Singing—that's <laughs> a good
1: answer. So karaoke, yay, yay or nay? Yeah, I hear that I'm okay at it, but I don't think I'm good at it. So uh, I think it's the Japanese genetics. I think some of us were born with some kind of karaoke gene, and it's kind of funny because you'll go see these Japanese people at karaoke bars that can't even speak English, but they can knock off a perfect—you know—they'll vin- you know, they'll sing it like word for word of some American song, and like they can't speak English. Hilarious. As we wrap everything up here, my man, what's one place online where you want our listeners could, to uh, connect with you the most? My website, 365driven.com. And you'll find everything that we talked about there, my podcast, my social medias, my group, everything. I try to keep it in one place, easy to remember. Three, six 365driven.com. Be sure to go check out some of the stuff that
0: Tony's putting out there. Um, I, I, I appreciate basically everything that he puts out. I, I think that he's a really genuine guy and uh, and I have a lot to learn from him and so do you. So make sure you go check out 365driven.com and his podcast of the same name, 365 Driven Podcast. Whatever podcast player you're listening right now, make it easy. Just pull out your phone, search for uh, 365 Driven, and just give them a quick subscribe. Show them some love. Tony, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Uh, Look forward to the next time we get to hang in person.
1: Hey, man. It's been fun, and it's always good to connect with you, brother.